0: You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at WeAreLibertarians.com. All right, let's get back to some boring subjects. Understand the risks to our country. Freedom brings people together. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians network. Learn more at WeAreLibertarians.com. Welcome to We Are Libertarians. Oh. Old Habits Die Hard. Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. It is great to be with you. I am Chris Spangle. If you're new and would like to know more about the show, visit wearelibertarians.com or chris Spangle.com. Before we start, I want to thank all of the members of Wall Plus. You're the reason that the show exists, and we thank you so much for your patronage. Learn more at joinwallplus.com. And today, has there ever been... A better time to consider leaving the country? I don't think so. So I'm talking to Mikhail Thorup, who is the he's the number one best-selling author of Expat Secrets, How to Pay Zero Taxes, Live Overseas, and Make Giant Piles of Money. He hosts the popular podcast, The Expat Money Show on iTunes, Stitcher. Uh, uh, you can find it on iTunes and Stitcher. And is the director at escapeartist.com, the world's oldest offshore website. He has traveled to more than 100 countries, including North Korea, Zimbabwe, El Salvador, and Iran, has has lived overseas in eight countries, and has circumnavigated the globe more than 400 times. Uh, so, you know, he's here to really talk to people about how to internationalize your life and business by legali- legally utilizing the offshore markets to reduce your taxes, protect your assets, and regain privacy and control over your life. And, uh, Mikel, you were referred to me by our good friend Mark Claire over at Lions of Liberty. Make sure you go check out all of their shows. Uh, you know, Mark is a, uh, dipping his toe into the expat lifestyle. Can you explain what an expat is and uh, are you an expat?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So straight off the bat, Chris, thank you so much for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. I'm really excited about today's interview. And hopefully I can inspire and maybe educate a couple of your listeners. And uh, I'm looking forward to digging in. And yeah, big shout out to Mark. Mark's an amazing guy. I've been on Lions of Liberty three times, I think. I've been on their podcasts. And um, yeah, it's been really good. So what is an expat? Okay, great question. Expat. I think it's always good to kind of clear this up because the the lexicon is important. And what ends up happening is people have some idea of something they heard, um, and it's not really the truth. So, so the really simple definition of an expat is somebody who lives overseas, who moves overseas. Now, are they going to stay there forever? Probably not. They're probably going to come back to their home country or they're going to move on to another country. They will have a residency or a citizenship in that country, so we kind of differ than a lot of the digital nomads who are out there. Um, a lot of those times, those people are on three month tourist visas sixty day tourist visas, things like this. Expats are usually have a residency, so they 'll be there for a couple of years Now. I first moved overseas when I was in my teenage years I, I went overseas by myself and um, I've lived in Australia. I was there for three years. I was on four different types of visas. I was in New Zealand for a year, Singapore for a year. Um, I lived in the Middle East for eight years, now I'm in Panama. I've been in a few other countries as well. But I've always had residencies or citizenships to live in these types of countries. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, how many different countries have you lived in, would you say?
1: So I've I've lived in eight countries. I've traveled to more than a hundred countries. We're probably going to be moving to a ninth country, you know, in the next year or so. And uh, I don't think I'm ever really going to stop. Like, sometimes people think like, oh, are you going to find, you know, your perfect place and then settle down? I'm Like, no, I actually enjoy moving to new countries. I like... The adventure. I like the change. I like seeing different cultures and how they behave and how the people react to things. What the food is like, the language, all these really exciting things. I mean, and then tack on to that, it fits my belief pattern. I'm a very, very hardcore libertarian. For me, my beliefs matter. I don't just talk about, you know, paying zero tax. I actually go out there and. Legally pay ne- zero tax by living in a country that has no tax. Same thing, I currently live in Panama. We have no standing military here. For me, war is murder. I mean, it's very, very simple. So, therefore, I would want to support something like that. So, I peacefully remove myself from the situation.
0: Okay, so let's start with the beginning. I mean, where did you grow up and how did you develop this passion of living different places? Yeah, so I'm
1: born in southwestern Ontario, I'm Canadian. And when I was, oh, oh, well, when I was, uh, <laughs> when I was in school, I got diagnosed with a learning disability. So when I was in grade three, the teacher pulled me out of class, and they took me aside, and they brought me to a special room, and the principal was there, and the resource teacher and my teacher, and they sat me down, and they said, Mikhail, Mikhail, something doesn't work quite right with your brain." And what we want to do is we want to send you to a special school, special school for special boys. And that's what they did, Chris. Every day for three years, I went to a special school. I got on a little white bus and I went across town and I went to the special school. But the problem was that it actually was not a special school. It was a regular school with a special class. Yeah. And you can kind of imagine what happened. Um, I got in a lot of fights, got picked on, got bullied, um, made fun of like, I mean, it was a pretty... Terrible experience. Now, this is no like, you know, poor Mikkel, what a victim, woe is me. As good as I got. There's no question <laughs> about that. But after three years, I was finally allowed to go back to my neighborhood school. And I thought, wow, this is going to be so amazing. These people, you know, these kids are going to be so happy to see me. They will have all missed me. This is going to be amazing. I'm not going to come home crying every day. It's going to be great. So I go back to my neighborhood school and the uh, it kind of and once again you can probably guess what happens everybody started to you know gossip and whisper and you know oh i remember him he went to some retard school mm. 1980s totally politically correct kids are very sensitive you know they really care about others feelings of course <laughs> but we've um... all grown so much <laughs> But I I figured out at a really young age that I absolutely hated school. I mean, I just thought it was the worst thing ever. And at 12 years old, I stopped going. And at 15, I officially dropped out. After that. And what happened, Chris, was I started meeting all these incredible people. And they were learning things and doing things in a really different way. And I started to understand that there's not only one way to do things. So I started doing residencies and all these things by myself and getting into different countries and banking and how does this work? How does that work? And started figuring out all these things myself. Now, I started doing this in the year 2000. So, I mean, the internet was not exactly what it was today. I mean, like we had the internet, but I mean, there's no smartphones. There was no uh, Wi-Fi, you know, mobile data. There was nothing like this. Um, We used to go to an internet cafe about once a month and you'd be able to, uh, I had a. I was running a blog at the time, talking about my travel. Hmm. I'd be able to put up a couple of posts about my trips back then in 2001, 2002, 2000, 2003, things like that. But that was about it. So I had to figure out everything on my own. Now, fast forward 20 years later, and I'm still at it. Like I still love traveling. I still am super, super passionate about this, and still figure out a lot of these things myself. Yes, I'm fortunate. I have mentors I work with. I have a few lawyers who work for me that I send my clients to them, and they help. Um, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a. I'm not a CPA. So everything that we talk about today is going to be based on my best understanding of the laws. Um, but uh, definitely, this is not individual tax advice. I actually have to say that.
0: So no, that's totally okay. Yeah. Uh, so so you find your passion and you're from Canada, you're living in Canada. At what age do you move to your first country? Like, are you just traveling to this country expecting to go back? Or did you make an intentional move to go to a country? And what what country was that?
1: Yeah, great question. So my first trip, I went to Ireland, England and Wales. I was about 16, 17 years old. Um, came back from that trip, saved up a little bit of money, went back to Europe again. These were backpacking trips. Um, all of western europe for two three months and then i was in north africa for two months um it was funny i actually traveled all around morocco i actually took a camel from morocco to the border with algeria three days on a camel to algeria and back i was probably about 18 or 19 at that point and then moved out to western canada i was in western canada for a year and a half um skiing all winter mountain biking all summer it was like a great, great life. No cares in the world. <laughs> and then I uh, started hitchhiking through um, the United States and all of Central and South America. I spent 18 months hitchhiking through Latin America. Then it was a year in New Zealand, um, three years in Australia, a year in Singapore, 366 days in the Arctic, <laughs> which was a very weird, random experience, but I did it. Um, where else was I? I was in Guatemala for five months. Um, I was in Abu Dhabi. I lived in the Middle East for eight years and, um, a little bit of time in the States as well. And then I, as an illegal immigrant, you know, <laughs> they can come after me. there has gotta be a statue of limitations for that. I'm sure. But yeah. And, uh, yeah. And now based out of Panama, we've been here 18 months now, I think. And it's nice. It's very beautiful here.
0: So, so how did you, in those early days when you're backpacking across various places, where did you how did you make money how did you afford to do that like to me i'm just like i would never be able to do that i i my brain wouldn't allow me to do it um because my my brain goes well you've got to have a job so how did you afford to live how did you survive and 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 make money and feed yourself
1: yeah so when i okay let's let's take central america for an example Um, it's still pretty cheap today, but I mean, go back 15, 20 years and it was really, really cheap. My daily budget was between like, say 10 and $15 a day. That would get me three meals, um, a night stay in a youth hostel. And I was studying Spanish, uh, back then and, um, some Spanish lessons, or I would live with a family and we would do like a homestay and things like that. So I worked a lot beforehand. I mean, I started working when I was 12 years old, working in farms, babysitting, anything I could get my hands on. And then i just save up as much money as I could, and I'd use all that. I mean, travel was the passion. Mm. And I wasn't going to let anything stand in my way. I still don't let anything stand in my way. But um, yeah, we didn't have like online businesses where you could just make an online income. Like Today, it's incredibly easy. To, to travel to be a digital nomad or an expat entrepreneur, build your business abroad and live in a cheaper country or travel can, like over and over and over again while making money in the States or in the UK or in Europe or something
0: like that. Uh, so, so let's say you know we are libertarians. Uh, the whole network takes off, and I'm able to do this full time, and you know you can do that anywhere. I'm looking at moving an hour south of where I live permanently even though my job's in Indianapolis, it's never been easier to to have a job because you're working on Zoom anyways. Mm -hmm. Um, If somebody were saying, because I've had this conversation with a lot of friends, you know, I'm working on Zoom, I'm working from home, why be stuck in my house when I could go do it from a beach or travel to a a different country? How do you investigate that? What are some first steps that people can take to start looking into maybe spending a few months in a different country to work? Where Where do you start?
1: Okay, so first of all, I agree with you. I think that we're seeing a massive paradigm shift in the world right now. There's so many people who no longer need to go into the office and the offices are probably never going to open up again. I mean, we've found so many solutions now from working at home. But yeah, as to your point, why are you going to stay in your city or in your state? I mean, a lot of people are moving down to a zero state tax. Okay, great. That's one step. But I mean, if you came down to Panama, where I live, you can legally pay zero taxes. Now, I mean, there's a process to it. We need to set it up and you have to have a couple of grand to get yourself started. But I mean, you have a higher standard of living and a lower cost of living. You're going to pay nothing in taxes or very, very little depending on your income. And I mean, it's all benefits all around. So how are you going to find out about information like this? Obviously, this is going to be a little bit self-serving, but I mean, I do encourage you guys to come and listen to my podcast, The Expat Money Show. Um, We have an interview-based show. We've done like 120-some-odd episodes interviewing some of the best people in the world. I mean, subscribe to my newsletter. We talk about this thing on a daily basis. I have a magazine that talks about this thing on a monthly basis. But, I mean, we can discuss some of the good programs that are out there, and I'm happy to share as much of my knowledge that I possibly can with your audience and try to help as many people as possible today.
0: That's great. Yeah, I mean, give us the full range of plugs, not just the podcast, but I know you have a book, you have... uh... A website what are some other so if somebody's maybe i mean imagine people are a podcast listener listening to this but if they mm-hmm. want to read or you know white papers what, what do you got
1: yeah absolutely so first off the bat subscribe to the podcast or at least check out the podcast come say hello if you go to expatmoneyshow.com show.com you're going to find that but you can also find it on every popular podcasting application so whatever you're listening to chris and i speak on today search Mikhail thorpe m-i-k-k-e-l-t-h-o-r-u-p or expat money show you're going to find me there My book is on Amazon, search Expat Secrets. You're going to find it there. Uh, Escape Artist is my blog. I took over the company about two years ago. We're doing incredible things there. It's really an offshore website. We deal a lot with the residencies, a lot in the asset protection. So trusts, foundations, corporate structures, offshore bank accounts, private gold vaults, all these types of real bread and butter offshore services. Company started about 30 years ago. Domain was registered in 1997. So it's very, very strong. I actually found out recently that it was actually featured in the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss. He actually talks about my business in there. And that was before I took over the business. So well, I thought uh, that, that was kind of cute.
0: Well, the little Ron Paul part of my brain when I heard offshore gold vault popped up. Uh, can you talk about what is an offshore market? And, uh, you know, let's say you're not ready to move. Let's say you're not ready for the expat lifestyle traveling around to different countries. You know, what, what are some ways that people can kind of diversify some of their income or their holdings uh, to, to plan for instability that might take place here in America?
1: Okay, I can do you one better. Let's look at it like this. Let's look at it as if You need a plan B, which I would argue that you do need a plan B. Everybody needs a plan B because, I mean, yes, you're going to have fire insurance for your house and you're going to have car insurance for your car and things like that. But what insurance do you have for for political risk, which I
0: mean, look at twenty twenty. Did you ever expect that it's the real... capital would be invaded in an insurrection? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, you don't have to explain it. The events that we're watching is just crazy.
1: Well, it's funny. <laughs> it's so funny, Chris, because I mean, I've been talking about this stuff
0: for years,
1: and I swear to God, people thought I was like the tinfoil hat guy <laughs> on the top of the mountain yelling. And now it's like I talk to people, and they're like, "Yeah, that makes sense." No, totally, absolutely. <laughs> you got to be prepared. So what we do is like, I kind of liken us to preppers, but instead of from the physical side and stockpiling ammo and tin food, we're prepping for economic problems. So we work with offshore bank accounts. Get your money outside of the US financial sector. Have foreign currencies. So for example, I mean, we work a lot with Swiss francs. I mean, yes, it is a fiat currency, but it is super, super stable. It's like literally the gold standard For currencies. It's backed by a solid government that has a lot of libertarian ideas that run through it. It's very localized. Um, I like a lot of the programs that go on in Switzerland. So, you know, having a foreign bank account that holds Swiss francs is a good idea. We mentioned the offshore gold vault. Okay, I've traveled and seen, I don't know, 10, 15 different gold vaults around the world, been invited on private tours places that hold $400, 500000000 million in physical metals, places that you're not going to find on a map, you're not going to be able to Google or just show up unannounced. The amazing thing, or one of the amazing things about these private vaults is, in most cases, and once again, this is not individual tax advice, but in most cases, the funds that you hold in these accounts are non-reportable. So let's clarify a little bit. As long as the gold is 100% allocated, which means, you know, you have a safety deposit box or it's on a shelf and your serial number. Is recorded to your name. It's not, you know, group allocated. It's not fractional ownership. It's not a fund. It's not a mutual fund or an ETF that holds gold. No, you really own the gold and it's put there. It's non reportable. Mm. So FATCA doesn't apply to anything like this. There's two, there's two main things that's non reportable on FATCA that and foreign real estate, as long as it's held in a person's own name. Now you start putting it in a company. You put it in other types of structures. I mean, that's a different conversation. But can, if you, can you explain what FATCA have- is?
0: I've not I've not heard of that.
1: Yeah, so FATCA is the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act, and basically, if you hold more than ten thousand dollars in foreign bank accounts, you need to report it. Um, you have to tell the government about it. And doesn't mean that I mean doesn't mean that it's illegal. Doesn't mean that you're not allowed to have it. But you have to tell them about it and where it is. So what's happened is all around the world a lot of banks have stopped accepting American clients because it's a lot of extra paperwork and there's some big punishments if it's not declared. They'll actually do a 30% withholding on all transactions that go through that bank mm-hmm. that that use the the US as an intermediary. So it's like super super serious. So It gets a little bit worse because actually you can have two different bank accounts and each bank account can have less than $10,000, but combined, if they have more than $10,000, you have to report. Or (laughs) if you start moving money between accounts and you have more than $10,000 with a movement, you're going to need to report it. And um, yeah, it can just be a real hassle. You're probably going to need an accountant or a CPA who's going to assist with this documentation. So once again, you have a private vault with a safety deposit box. You own precious metals. You put the precious metals in the vault. You don't have to tell anybody about it. Yeah. Now, if you sell it and you make a capital gains, I mean that's a different story. We're not talking about that. We're just talking about holding. So there's a, a straightforward, easy tip on how people can start to protect a portion of their wealth. And you know, I must sound money guy, I'm I'm guessing a lot of the people who are listening to the show today also follow a lot of precious metals, um, gold, silver, platinum, palladium, all these types of precious metals. And uh, we do a lot of these things overseas.
0: So what are some other ways that you can diversify and protect your money and uh, make sure that you're secure and that is fairly low risk?
1: So as I mentioned before, foreign real estate can be very beneficial. Now, there's some caveats. Do I want you to just go out there and buy something online that you've never seen before? No. I mean, you need to take some personal responsibility. You need to go down to the country, view it. You need to understand a little bit about the market. You most likely want to have local representation, Um, You know your own lawyer who is going to do this, not the developer's lawyer, not the real estate agent's lawyer, your own lawyer. Um, I think that this is a good option for people because they have somewhere that they'll be able to go to. If we have a shit hits the fan type of moment, which I mean, we've kind of had like a million of them in the last year. <laughs> so like, I don't know, you know, what else we need to say about that. But I mean, foreign real estate is a is a solid option. Now, here's the cool thing about foreign real estate, Chris. You can actually secure yourself a residency and in some cases a citizenship, which means the legal ability to live and work in that country and in the case of citizenship you can get the passport which is a second travel document which means you don't have to travel on your u.s passport or canadian passport or whatever you can travel on a panamanian passport or a portuguese passport you can get into the european union and live anywhere in europe i mean there's lots of options there and those all come from investment in the country in the form of real estate. So it's got kind of multiple uses for it. And I would also argue that a second residency or second citizenship really does fit that plan B that we were talking about.
0: So I imagine that you have strategies, you know, leading back to expatsecretsbook.com. But if you wanted to get involved in looking into real estate overseas or purchasing real estate overseas, where do you start with that?
1: So, I mean... You can do a lot of Google searches. I mean, you're going to find my company. You're going to find a couple of other companies. You can work with me. Obviously, I'll be happy if you guys work with me. But I mean, I don't want to make this like a giant plug for my business. I want to share as much value as possible. My only caveat would be, guys, whoever you do choose to work with, make sure they have a good reputation in the marketplace and they have the longevity in the space. Because when you start moving offshore, I mean... There's some really good people, some really knowledgeable people, and there's some people who, you know, aren't so knowledgeable. And if you make mistakes in going offshore, specifically uh, in tax reporting, I mean, this becomes orange, orange jumpsuit type of conversation. Like, I mean, you got to be really careful about these things. So we work exclusively with licensed professionals, CPAs, um, tax accountants, lawyers, who specialize in expat and offshore matters? Um, you know, uh, the lawyers I work with, most of them have between twenty and thirty years experience in the industry.
0: Okay, very cool. So you mentioned the secret offshore gold vault. What what is that? The, like you can just go into one. Of, what does that mean? So okay, so these are all private businesses. They're not listed.
1: I mean, I remember visiting one in Singapore. I got an invite. I was living in the Middle East. I got an invitation to come out and and see the place it was pretty neat we actually got a film crew and they actually filmed inside not outside not where the place was actually located or anything like that but um, actually did a little documentary on the inside of this vault and it was so wild because I was staying at the at the hotel and they gave me the address and it was like just a blank spot on Google Maps like there was no Nothing there. So we followed it, had to ask some questions on the street. No one knew where it was. Finally, after like 40 minutes or something, and in Singapore, that's a long time, uh, located the place. And it was just a nondescript building. And called the the owner. He came outside and met me. And it was really neat. We went in the front door. And it's kind of this L-shaped room. And there's this bulletproof glass with about four or five guys behind. And they ask for your passport and everything like that. So after we do all the registration process, the second door to actually get into the vault won't open until the first door behind us is completely closed and locked. So I said, like, kind of what's with that? He said, Oh, it's called a man trap. So it's physically impossible for the door to open. So they can't just force their way in. And then he's also told me that it's in this L shape so that if they try to drive a truck or a transport or something through the front door, they can't do this giant right-hand turn smashed through the second door. I was like, wow, that's pretty wild. (laughs) So we get in and the um, TV crew arrives. We get all mic'd up and stuff like that. And there's a second gate, which, you know, is like big iron bars. And then we get to the gold vault. So we've kind of already gone through three or four doors at this point. And it's this huge, huge door. It looks like out of a movie. Exactly like what you would expect. Super uh, Hollywood vault door. And I'm like, oh, can I... Can I open it? Can I move it? This is my first time. <laughs> I, I was like geeking out on all of this you stuff. You don't know all the, <laughs>
0: the gold vault norms. In <laughs> yeah, I was like, I got to open this
1: thing. So um, he's like, sure, but just be careful because if you swing it and it say like hits the door, hits the wall or something like that, there's actually a plate of glass on the inside. And if the glass cracks, the pistons will shoot out and you'll never be able to, you know, close or open the thing again. They'll have to take the whole door apart. They'll have to get the company who, like, manufactured, installed the door to come in. So I was like, okay, so very gently move this, like, three-ton door open. (laughs) And I opened the door, and it's a – it's not a vault, Chris. It's a warehouse, a giant warehouse, probably 50 feet high, with silver, with big boxes of physical silver stacked floor to ceiling, like – unbelievable and then inside this vault they have another vault with a similar door and inside that they have safety deposit boxes and in the safety deposit boxes they have physical gold so it was like one of these bars of gold at the time this was probably six or seven no about two or three maybe three or four years ago i was there they were worth about a half a million dollars a piece these gold bars wow And i mean one bar you lifted it i mean it was like 30 pounds or something like that it was crazy So it was a really cool experience. And after that, I was like, I just wanted to learn everything I could. So I started traveling all over the world to go and view these different vaults and started making um, feelers out to different people in the industry. So I went to Switzerland, to Germany, to Austria, um, to Dubai, uh, all over the place, checking out these different vaults, writing about it, interviewing them, making friends with the guys who developed these started working with the security agencies and the companies that do the transport and the logistics for precious metals. Um, and then I found one here in Panama and this place like blew so many <laughs> of the other ones out of the water. I still like Singapore a lot, but I mean, I went to s- four places in Singapore in Switzerland and the one here in Panama was way more impressive. When I learned the security features there, it was like nuts. They had custom apps on their phone they had a keychain that if they put the push the button it goes a white out screen of smoke in the vault where you can't see more than like two inches in front of your face so one of the biggest risks for gold vaults is if they actually try to kidnap the owners of it and force them to open it so they have all these preventative measures to stop that including this whiteout smoke and i mean it's just wild it's, it's i swear to god it's i, I feel like all. i'm talking
0: to raymond reddington right now i don't know if you've watched <laughs> the blacklist but that's what it sounds like <laughs> so cool
1: i thought it was so ra- i thought it was so wild i mean just learning about this stuff and uh yeah just read a hundred books met everybody who works in the industry and um yeah i just i really love this stuff
0: Well, that that is really exciting. So tell us just a a little bit more about the book before we finish up today.
1: Yeah, so it's called Expat Secrets. You can go to expatsecretsbook.com or just search it on Amazon. I mean, it's 18 chapters. Each chapter is on a different segment of the offshore space. So we talk about, like I said, offshore banking, digital gold, digital precious metals. We talk about agriculture, which we didn't get a chance to talk about today, but is also really, really exciting. Uh, We work with like um, plantations that do timber, um, food products, things that are shipped all around the world where you actually own the land. Um, Once again, I like things that I can touch. I like things that I can see. I like things that are mine. I mean, the U.S. stock market is so bloated and <laughs> overbought right now it's not even funny how we can have up markets at the moment is pure insanity i'm it, it, so let me, let's Gitch.
0: elaborate on that because i just saw you know the markets way above where it was before covid and the covid crash i mean that doesn't make any sense whatsoever that the markets are doing so well i mean other than maybe we've pumped so much money in i mean what what is your take well, on Well, that? that is it i mean the dollar is worth less it's
1: not worthless. Well, not at this point, but it is worthless. Trillions upon trillions of dollars have been pumped into the economy. So, I mean, the idea was going to go to small businesses, but look what happened there. They just absolutely reamed small businesses. They put out, what, 167,000 businesses, the majority of which will never open again in the United States. That is mental. That is absolutely crazy. Then I've been reading some tax reports that in 2021 for the tax returns, they're going to triple, I think it was triple, the amount of audits that they do on small businesses.
0: So <laughs> they're just going me. to
1: absolutely <sighs> waste as many people's time as possible. They, they go out there, destroy businesses, and now they're going to nitpick you for every little expense that you have. I mean, it's disgusting. The whole behavior is disgusting. I don't want to participate. I like Bitcoin. I mean, I don't like any of the other cryptocurrencies, but I do like Bitcoin. I've been in it since 2016. We've done well in that. Precious metals, which we've talked a lot about today. Foreign real estate. Cash in foreign currencies. Swiss francs is my favorite. I mean, that's what I usually like. And then, I mean, own your own business have skills, build up your skills where you are marketable. I mean, that's one of the best investments that you can do. I mean, don't be beholden to one employer where you need to go into an office. If you can have some type of an online income, I mean, or work as a freelancer for the person who's going to treat you the best. I mean, that's just smart. I mean, you kind of have to do that at this point.
0: Yeah, my girlfriend and I talk all the time about multiple streams of income and how important that has become to us over the last two to three years. And, and just the the feeling of security and insurance that that brings, because then you're not constantly worried about your, you know, I do my best for all of my employers and jobs and, and all that stuff. But if, you know, one and we have a fight or a falling out or whatever, you know, I, I'm OK. I'll be fine. I mean, that's just such yep. a huge relief. Um, well. Expatmoneyshow.com to download uh, your your podcast. What else can you get there? I know you have a special report.
1: Yes. So we just updated it a couple of weeks ago. It's called 19 International Strategies to Protect and Grow Your Wealth. It's free. It's a infographic report. It's maybe 10 pages long, something like that. And it really lays out a lot of the things that we've been talking about today. And from that, you're going to be able to find more information. So articles, podcast episodes, services, um, you know, My business model is basically we give away 95% of the information for free and then for the services we charge. So you need to buy foreign real estate. Well, you don't get the real estate for free, but on how to do it, we'll do our best to help you. Um, Same thing, you know, you want an offshore bank account? No problem. We'll assist you in opening an offshore bank account. I mean, it's a couple hundred bucks. I mean, it's a smart move that you you can do today, start moving a bit of your money outside of the financial sector.
0: Awesome. Well, Mikel Thorup, thank you so much for your time. It's been so fascinating to talk to you. Is there is there anything else that you'd like to leave our audience before we go?
1: No, that's it. Thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate your time. I hope that we provided a little bit of value. I hope that your listeners take these things seriously. I mean, doors are closing literally all around us. Um, my company and the work that I do, everything is completely legal as of today, as of this recording. Next week, if things change, I'm not willing to break the law to help someone. So my point is that make choices today to protect yourself because if the door closes, I mean, there's no way around it at that point.
0: You know, that would have been like scaremongering, Mikkel, like (laughs) six months ago. But when you say it may change next week, you could be totally right. Uh, (laughs) We'll be right. I mean, literally, there's programs, there's residency programs
1: like we used to work with with Cyprus and they had a citizenship by investment you pay money you buy a house and you get a passport in hand in 90 days mm. it is gone that program is gone interesting um lots of programs there are getting a lot of pressure just like we've seen big tech is pressuring things US government is pressuring other company other countries to comply with their wishes so get your residency now get your accounts now because I'm all about more freedom, not less freedom. So,
0: Mikel Thorpe, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for listening to We Are Libertarians and we will, t- the Chris Spangle Show did it again. Uh, <laughs> tune in and we'll uh, talk to you soon.